have you been doing, Laura? <laughs> yeah, see, that's the problem with recording after a work day. Yeah, um, just looking forward to the Christmas break, frankly. Um, I mean, things are going fine at work, but, you know, life in a... It, but it'd be much easier if you were doing nothing. It would be so much easier. <laughs> oh, gosh, all the dwelling on things I would do. So self-indulgent. That's the thing. No matter how great your job is, um, vacation time is always welcome. Yeah, says you currently <clears throat> on vacation. How's that going? Um, well, I get to see like emergency emails drift through my inbox. And um, yeah, I remember that when I, a few times I went on vacation when I was working in Bellevue. <clears throat> I just kind of would like watch and float by on my phone and be like, well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I jump in when I need to, but uh, hopefully they can take care of a lot of the stuff or they'll leave it for when I get back and then I'll have a bunch of stuff to do when I get back. <laughs> yeah. Right back at the deep end for you. Ugh. Yeah, it's a good time. Uh-huh. But anyways, hello, everyone. My name is Jason. I am Laura. And we are Come Back a Star and Movie Award. Um, shootout? Shootout. There yeah. we go. Yeah, that's where we are today. Uh, we are watching every Best Picture nominee and winner from 1927 onwards, and this episode is number 026, Cimarron. Cimarron, which, um, okay, I, I will do it now, because to be frank, I couldn't really figure out, they might have said it during the movie, but I missed it, like what Cimarron is in the movie. They named their kid Cimarron, but he's really barely in it. So I looked it up, and uh, Google tells me that uh, it's a group of people in Panama, and in all likelihood, the name of this group is derived from the Spanish word uh, meaning wild or untamed. This word usually referred to runaways or castaways and is ultimately derived from the word for thicket in Old Spanish. So there you go. Take Some etymology for it. you. There. there you are. We're right also, off the bat. We like to like really win with etymology. First thing off the bat. Yes, we're also an etymology. Etymology. Excuse me. Podcast. We Gosh. can't say the word, but we yeah. uh, talk about it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so what we do on this podcast, uh, if you're new here, is we review the movie. We kind of go over the plot so you guys can kind of follow along without actually having to watch the movie, mm. which is uh, sometimes a good idea. Yeah. So we, we cover the plot. We, we give our, our little insights and uh, you can follow along at home and give your little insights if you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, we won't hear it. No, it won't be recorded unless you send us a recording. But um, if you did, that would be a little weird. I I can't promise you I'd listen to it. it it'd still be, uh, you know, audience interaction. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Don't don't listen to my negativity. You send in all the crazy recordings. I want to hear movie manifestos. That's what we want to see. Exactly. Uh, but instead, on this podcast, you're only going to get ours for now. Um, and after we've reviewed the plot and kind of given our, our little insights, we go ahead and we rate these movies on major categories including acting, writing, cinematography, and overall, how those three things work together. And then we give the movies uh, some chance for some bonus points. Yeah. Uh, based off of things like their costumes and sets and how bold they were and the legacy that these movies leave behind. And so we are starting off this week with Cimarron. And let's cover the uh, plot of the movie. Laura, would you like to uh, kick us off? All right. 
So Wesley Ruggles' 1931 adaptation of Edna Ferber's novel opens on the first day of the 1889 Oklahoma land rush. The gun is fired, and which just surprised me because I didn't know they did it that way, like a like a race. Yeah, it was bananas. Um, it's fired, and the wagons take off at this breakneck pace, which does not seem safe or advisable or practical for people picking up and moving all their belongings. There is nothing about the 1889 uh, land rush that seems to make any sense of morally, for no. one, because they're. They're stealing land from people that they've already stolen land from. So Mm -hmm. that's not great. Yeah, I am pitifully uneducated about specifically Oklahoma land rush, but I guess I get a taste for it here and it's not too appetizing. Yeah, I still don't understand why some people had like their whole families in wagons while other people were just on horseback. It seems to me that uh, it would make sense to just have one person on horseback if that one person is all you need to claim something. Uh, yeah, why then, would you bring a whole cartload of crap with you? But yeah, then you make the claim, then wait for yeah, train like a train track to like bring your family. Yeah, but in in usual manifest destiny uh, <laughs> style, uh, usual usual white imperialist style, <laughs> it is done in the most reckless and insane way possible with with people risking their lives over some land that they have to just grab. And one such person is attorney and adventurer Yancey Cravat. That's his name, and he's played by Rach- Richard Dix, who plays him just as you'd like someone named Yancey Cravat to be played. And he stops to help a young woman who falls off her horse named Dixie Lee, played by Estelle Taylor. However, this is just a ruse for Dixie to steal Yancey's horse and claim Yancey's real estate on Bear Creek. Knowing Dixie Lee's troubled past, which we never really know how he knows about it, but I guess he just does. Yeah. Yancey doesn't hold a grudge and he returns home to the family of his wife, Sabra Venable, uh, who would later... Uh, played by Irene Dunn, who would have a very big career in the 30s and 40s, and their little boy named Cimarron. Is um, is Irene Dunn, is she usually in these types of roles, or does she really diversify after this you one? You know, she actually is pretty diverse. She actually is probably more well-known, if we had to pick like a type of role today, as this kind of the screwball comedian. Oh, really? She, yeah, she was in, um, I think her... Like my favorite wife with Car- she teamed up with Cary Grant quite a bit. Uh, the awful truth is probably her most popular one with that, and she's good. And she um, is good in future movies. It takes a while for me to warm up to her in this. She does not seem to really stand out in a particularly good way. Her characters kind of all over the place. Yes. I mean, all the characters are kind of all over the place That's in true. terms of what their motivations are, what their views that they hold are. So it's it's difficult to to get a handle on them. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, I mean, is kind of accurate to real life. Yeah, but it makes it difficult for for, for a narrative. <laughs> for a narrative, narratively speaking, real life sometimes isn't the best choice to go for. Anyways, the Venables, uh, which is Sabra's family, are a rich, haughty bunch who look down on Yancey's ambitions to travel to the Oklahoma Territory with their daughter and promote Native American rights. That struck me as odd when they first announced that, but that this guy was really big into uh, native rights when he's going in and he's taking Oklahoma territory. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting character, Yancey. He likes he likes struts and bellows like the biggest braggart you ever met, which makes you think he's going to be full of 
evil. Yeah. (laughs) And he's yeah. But he does show himself to have an honor that a lot of white people back then didn't. And he really does seem to care about people who are in more dire straits like the Native Americans. And yet he goes, I mean, all those ideals don't count for much when you're out there taking their land. Right. He participates in the privilege, but at the same time, he criticizes it, which is. He is someone who strikes me and we see this later on as someone who talks a good game, but doesn't really live up to his own ideals. I think that's an excellent way to put it and kind of describes this entire movie. Yes, 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 yes. It talks a good game and fails Falls flat on its face when it comes to really backing those up. Such as their portrayal of the next character we meet, who is the young African-American servant Isaiah, who is intrigued by overhearing this. And he's overhearing this because he is suspended on a table, table. above the dining room, fanning the white people. And they directed this poor actor. I need to look up his name. I forgot to write it down. Um who plays Isaiah to just fulfill every sort of stereotype of of a young black man back then. And it's, it's garbage. And again, (laughs) they must have thought they were being progressive by giving him so much screen time, but it's again, it's not progressive when it's portrayed this way. Yeah. He doesn't get to be his own character. He gets to be the character that white people invented for him. Yes. He uh, is afforded no dignity and, it's just really leaves a bad taste. Laura, I have a theory. Yes. I think none of the script was written by a black person. What? <laughs> but certainly Native Americans chipped in, right? Right? No, I don't think so. What? Well, that's such a non-surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But yeah. you know, Isaiah is an ambitious young man and he smuggles him himself aboard their wagon. When he's discovered, uh, when they stop to camp, Yancey cheerfully agrees to let him come along. Although I think he says some racist nonsense in between all that. I It was yeah, hard to hear. <laughs> it, it was interwoven with a lot of uh, exactly what you said, racist nonsense. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we'll get into it in technical. But yeah, it was difficult to hear a lot of this movie. <laughs> yeah, they still, I think, like in, in old Arizona from last year, uh, were really super impressed with themselves for filming sound outside without really caring about doing it well. Yeah, you didn't hear them that well. Nah. Um while they are on the trail, they are almost robbed by the uh, infamous outlaw The Kid, played by William Collier Jr. and his gang. But the kid recognizes Yancey and a mystified Sabra learns they are friends. They part on good terms to Sabra's mystification. And I do not blame her at this point. It's like Yancey and her are being held at gunpoint. But then Yancey turns around and laughs and jokes with this guy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why are you friends with this person? Like, yeah, they don't even go that too. They don't go too deeply into how this happened. No, it just it just kind of is. This is a, I feel like this is a poor adaptation of a book. Because it's leaving out character details that would help uh, the audience to know. Like, we don't know what drew what like drew Yancey and Sabra together because we're going to learn they really don't seem to have anything in common. Yeah, at least that we see. At least that we see. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice if we saw a little more. 
That's an interesting theory that might explain a lot of the disjointedness that we mm-hmm. get in this movie where it's kind of like, wait a minute. So this person just suddenly changed character. What developed here? Why? Right. It's like they, Why were, are they acting this way when I thought they were another way. It's like an outline of the book, not an adaptation. Right. Right. Yeah. I assume I haven't read the book. Okay. So moving on, the couple arrive in the boomer town of Osage. Is that how you pronounce it? Osage. Osage. I think. I'm not sure. Where Sabra has a difficult time adjusting to its rough and tumble ways. Yancey has his sights set on ruthless bully Lon Yontis, but played by Stanley Fields, who killed none other Pigler. That's right. The former publisher of the local newspaper, Pigler. His name is actually Pigler. And you know what? I'm kind of glad we don't learn more about him because it's more fascinating that way. Yeah. Pigler has to remain a mystery. He does. Otherwise, his magic dies. Uh, Along with his life. Poor Pigler. I know. Pour one out for Pigler, everyone. Do it now. Yancey decides to run the local newspaper instead, dubbing it the Oklahoma Wigwam. The town council asks Yancey to lead the first church service for the town, and when Yancey alludes to Yont, the uh, the bully, a shootout ensues in which Yont is left dead. I have to say, this church scene was very interesting, and I think it encapsulates a lot of what makes this movie good, but frustrating, and all of that. We meet basically the entire town in one room mm-hmm. at that point, uh, including Dixie Lee, who's there, who we assume is a madam. Although right. never come out and say it. She has a bevy of ladies with her. And um, every it really does seem more like a circus than a church service. Everyone's right. just yelling and throwing things and shooting each other dead. Um, and uh, yeah, you can see why someone who was re- reared in a more gentle way like Sabra would be pretty dumbfounded by all this. Yeah. And you get little snippets. Uh, so she befriends a kind of uh, hoity-toity a lady from the East played by Edna May Oliver, who was a wonderful character actress back then. She's it really reminds me of Carol Burnett. Hmm. I don't know who that is. <gasps> Jeez. I know you're the movie buff here. I, I just watch these things and they promptly fall out of my head. Fascinating that, uh, this is the, the podcast you're going after then. I, I, I admire that. I don't know what the word would be, but, uh, cool. <laughs> Hey, uh, I think I'm doing an okay job so You're far. You're doing great. I'm trying at least. But anyways, with Yont gone, Yancey and Sabra are free to return uh, to turn Osage into a home for their family. They become friends with a local Jewish tailor, Saul Levy, played by Georgie Stone. Who uh, was in uh, public, and no, uh, Little Caesar as... Um, oh yeah, I thought yeah. he looked familiar. Yeah, as uh, Cagney's right-hand man throughout the, the, the sycophant. You're right. Yeah. yeah Otero, yeah. that was his name. Yeah. So he, and I think he's great. He obviously is a versatile actor because he was great as Otero and really played up the kind of mm-hmm. sycophantic, kind of psychotic edge. And yet with Saul, who was like a very like soft-spoken man, he really captures that too. And I have to say it is probably the most sympathetic portrayal of someone who's not. Majority. Yeah. Majority. Basically. Yeah. It, it is probably the, the least offensive minority portrayal yes. in this movie. That is, mm, that's kind of a low bar, Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting when you go back to the church service, he does show up to the church service, uh, 
And it seems this kind of like to be, it, it's less of a church service and more just kind of like a community gathering. So yeah, um, there are even some native people there. And when, uh, when uh, Yancey says like, well, the first thing we got to do is build an organ. And they say like, well, what, we don't have a building to put an organ in. And he's just like, well, yeah, if you raise money for the organ, we'll have to build a building. It's Ugh. which I think was supposed to be a comic interlude. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he demands money from everyone except for the native people. And he even points out, it's like, yeah, it makes no sense that they would like give money towards us who have like taken everything from them. Right. And it's like, that's a really cool thing to say and to be aware of in this time and place. But you're still there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Land. So He's standing on their land while saying like, well, you know, they probably don't like us because I'm standing on their land. So I'm going to do like this magnanimous gesture of letting them stay in our church. Of letting them not pay for an organ. Right. It's yeah. like, good job, Yance. Good job. Yeah, it's this movie. I feel like had tried to have good intentions. Yeah. And just completely missed the mark because they didn't really talk to anyone that they were trying to have good intentions with. Yes, exactly. I mean, it was very much, and it still goes on today, like liberal progressive um, opinions about how to take care of the, of racial tensions in this country through the lens of a white writer, a white actor, a white director. Right. So like, on and so go, forth. Go ahead and ask, you know, other people. Yeah. That are actually experiencing the uh, <laughs> the the lack of privilege that you enjoy. So let's see. Returning to um, Saul Levy, the tailor, uh, Yancey defended him when Yant, uh, the bully and his group had been harassing him early on. Uh, yeah. So they they see him walking down the street and they basically just give him a bunch of crap and start shooting their guns at his feet. So he has to dance and they try to force him to drink which i didn't quite understand if like I don't, was, I don't know what the deal was with no, that but it's, it's just kind of like it was in the middle of the day yeah oh, i don't think that was a religious thing that was just kind of like i, I don't think so I don't, either like i'm working it's like <laughs> stop putting this bottle in my face right so none of us are sad really that yancey shot yount but i'm surprised it ended it that whole tension wrapped up so quickly because we really thought yeah. that was going to continue into like be a thing throughout the movie and i was pretty relieved when they that way because i'm like i just don't really enjoy seeing a guy like lon yount throughout a movie thanks yeah it it's kind of like a point of tension that gets brought up this wildness that is still in the town mm -hmm. and is i think that kind of marks the end of osage as the um as this wild 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 west mm -hmm town where there's still like bandits running the sound and everything like that so that's kind of put to bed with uh with you know yancy ironically just shooting somebody but in there a church we go. well a church. Not, not quite a church but there was a church it's a gambling hall on. turned into a church it's which a i gambling. thought was a nice touch that was pretty cool um still active gambling hall the gambling hall owner was there and, and part of the service and everything like that so it was <laughs> it was kind of a, a a mixing of morals which i found enjoyable yeah it was it was uh cute <laughs> uh yancy also hires the stuttering jesse ricky played by roscoe eights as his printer for the newspaper also present in the town is dixie lee and sabra and the rest of the town ladies uh, including edna may who we mentioned uh, as um, Tracy Wyatt. 
uh, they are all suspicious of her lifestyle. In fact, uh, suspicious uh, Dixie. of Dixie Lee's yeah. lifestyle. Excuse me. In fact, Sabra is far more judgmental and conservative than her husband, unwilling to let little Cimarron socialize with the Native Americans. Uh, and that, I don't know, feels inconsistent sometimes. Is she is she consistently the more regressive of the two? Or? I, yeah, she she is. Um, she really becomes around this time pretty unlikable. Um, you know, at first, you know, when she doesn't say a lot when they're being she's being dragged across the country on wagon and we sympathize a lot with her because she has no idea what she's in for. And so people are like shooting at her husband in the street and everything. It's like. But then once she settles in and becomes kind of like a popular lady throughout the town, she lets it all go to her head mm-hmm. and uh, really kind of ramps up the racism. And uh, we, it it takes a while, for, I think, for us to kind of figure out where they're going with her character, because at this point, she's just not that likable, really. Yeah, she's she's racist, bigoted, prejudiced against Dixie Lee for just being herself and i think also a little suspicious because her husband knows her and uh so there's probably you know a little feminine jealousy going on yeah um shortly after the birth of yancey and sabra's daughter donna uh the kid and his gang arrive and start shooting up the town including killing young isaiah which made me mad yeah uh with no choice yancey has to shoot and kill the kid uh which i'm like I'm sorry, Isaiah, this child just died and you could care less. But this criminal who shot him is now dead and you feel guilty about that guy. It's just I again, we don't. I mean, he doesn't he's not super jazzed about Isaiah either. I think he learns afterwards. Right. But it's still like more time is spent on him mourning this the kid. And again, we never yeah. understand really how they became friends, what their bond is. So I feel like there should have been just more time spent on relationships. Yeah, I would agree. Um, full of guilt, Yancey can't take any joy from his family's continuing rise in status in Osage. Uh, despite Sabra's strong objections, he takes off on his own when he hears there's another land rush on the Cherokee Strip. So a whole other group of people to uh, to, to, steal, uh, to from. steal from, but maybe say nice things about in a church service. He's gone for five years without a word, leaving Sabra to take charge of the paper. She and Saul grow closer, but she continues to stay faithful to Yancey. She really, you could tell, right? I don't know if they really want to out and out say it, but that Saul is obviously kind of attracted to Sabra. And yeah, they're either they're either like truly just very good platonic friends or like. He obviously never tries anything because. Yeah, he he doesn't. He really respects Yancey. Yancey was the one who um, intervened on his behalf when he was getting harassed. Um, But. Also, Yancey just straight up left for five years without a word, without sending any money. And Sabra really has to, like, you know, step up. And Saul is really the only one that you get the feeling who's kind of just helping her out. Yeah. I mean, uh, him and, and the uh, printer. And the printer, who, again, with the, the hilarious stammer that 1930s seem to love characters with stammers. Just like, I don't I don't get yeah. why you think this is so funny. Um, at least he's afforded a little dignity. Yeah, he's not completely goofy. No. 
It's just that he has a stammer. Yeah. Not like poor Isaiah. No. Yeah. I. Uh, uh, Yancey returns in just enough time to defend Dixie Lee in court. She is charged with indecency, but Yancey's impassioned description of her fallen life, uh, which includes that her father's death left her destitute. Uh, She fell in love with a man and married him only to find out that he was already married and then her freaking baby died, appeals to the men in the jury and she's let free. Uh, Sabra initially initially condemns her husband's defense of the woman because she was turning the paper basically against Dixie and putting headlines about how she should go to jail. So like she's got the vendetta of all vendettas against this woman. It's very gross. Um, However, uh, Yancey finally succeeds in convincing her. No, everything I said about her was in fact true. She did go through this and it's sort of an epiphany. For Sabra, like, oh, oh, well, then we're a lot alike. We had like the same kind of upbringing. She could have been like me if circumstances were different and doesn't say like the other half that Sabra could have ended up like Dixie Lee had circumstances, but different. It's like, oh, she used to be wealthy. Yeah, she used to be wealthy. Which, so again, means- doesn't speak super well to Sabra yet again, even yeah. when she even when she's taking the correct tack. He Yancey still has to like present her as like, well, she was a good wealthy Mm-hmm. woman and then she fell from grace like whereas like well what if she what if she just started out poor yeah How, what what difference does that make they still deserve respect and autonomy and to live their freaking lives yeah so it's just it's just missing the point that the this movie is trying but is just kind of failing to go all the way with it right years pass and their children grow up Donna has returned from school, a bit haughty in attitude like her mother's family. Although now more liberal when it comes to women like Dixie Lee, Sabra is still racist against Native Americans. She's horrified when she learns Cimarron intends to marry Ruby, the daughter of an Osage chief who's worked as a servant for the Cravats. Uh, Sabra also tries to convince Yancey not to publish a condemning editorial about the government's appalling treatment of the Oklahoma tribes after the early oil boom of the 1900s. Yet Yancey stands firm, insisting one day she'll forgive and understand. And again, yeah, that's a really awesome thing to put in your paper. Not a lot of people were doing it back then, but you are still there actively benefiting. But we're all still standing on stolen land. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, difficult. I guess what makes a difference when you're talking about Yancey Cravats is that he was actively doing the stealing. True. He kind of like says one thing at the corner of his mouth and then does something completely different. Yeah, just disappears on his family for like years. Yeah, and also disappears from his family. <laughs> Yancey's wanderlust returns and he disappears again. And this time it seems to be for good after writing this article, which uh, it, it again, we must be missing part of the book or something yep. like that because it doesn't explain why he just like disappears and sends no word. Yeah, they're like just inner titles like, well, this Wanderlust is back. So he goes away and we're just like, well, is there a con- any kind of conversation that happened? And again, it's this, this idea of like, I will uh, I will publish this, uh, you know, scorching uh, article that will bring a lot of heat on our family. And then I'll just traipse off and leave Sabra to deal with the fallout. Yeah, so that's him. Uh, <laughs> In 
we kind of fast forward a little bit in 1929 an older Sabra is still head of the paper and has indeed come to fully understand the liberal human issues that her husband espoused. Um, she is a lot, a lot less, uh, horrible. Yeah. She's very much <laughs> mellower. And I have to say, I like Irene Dunn far more as older Sabra than I did as younger Sabra. Right. She herself, I guess I read that later on, she looked back and said, Oh, my performance was very handy in that. And it was, but I feel like she does play older Sabra with a lot of understated, uh, Quiet dignity, but not in a way that's very stuffy or anything. She really right. seems more, for the first time, she seems like a real person. Yeah. Yeah. Before that, it felt very forced. Yeah. Very hand wringing O'Neill kind of performance. <laughs> no. Yep. Uh, <laughs> she is elected congresswoman and at a banquet in her honor, she introduces her family, including her daughter-in-law, Ruby played by Dolores Brown, who gives a speech in her people's honor. I could not find anything about Dolores Brown except for like a picture on IMDb. So I don't know if she was actually of Native American heritage. The likely thing is they were like, oh, this this act, this bit player has dark hair and had her <laughs> uh, step in. So I don't know. I mean, she gets the one speech and like that's it for her character. We do finally like after that, see like a Native American man like shake Sabra's hand and say, thank you for my people and all. And pretty sure he was native, but it's, I mean, that's it. That's the native American representation we get in this movie. That's all about their rights. Pretty much. Um, when Sabra visits a nearby oil drill, she learns that a man named old Yance has valiantly sa sacrificed himself and saved countless drillers during an explosion. He like wrapped himself around the drill that was going to blow or something, right? Yeah. He caves in some, his chest. Some, something like driving Dramatic. on a grenade. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, surmising that this is Yancey, uh, Sabra flies to his side and cradles him in his, in her arms as he dies. And that's the movie. And that is the end of the movie. And it and is the end yeah. of the old West. End of the old West. Good point. Yeah. Cause it does kind of say, you know, with the ants dying, the old West dies. And frankly, that's a good thing. Um, but I have to say, yeah, probably the most effective moment is, you know, after she hears the name old ants and the look on her face and just kind of the breath she takes as she runs to like mm -hmm. go see him. I think that is probably Dunn's best acting in the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no uh, thoughts. My initial thoughts is that it. Oh, gosh, it tried to do something but couldn't decide on what it was mm -hmm. it it was out there on a mission and couldn't decide what the mission was yeah did it want to just tell the book or did it want to like try to uh appeal to a broader audience a more progressive audience or we don't it... even know really how progressive this was too because hollywood does have a tendency to be very progressive when it's safe. Yes, yes, that's a perfect way of putting it. And I mean, we're, we are talking about events and views that started off, according to this, I mean, in this movie at 1889. Yeah. Where, I mean, hopefully views in 1929, at least in some areas of the country, had progressed a little bit. Right. So it's not like they were going to ruffle too many uh, feathers with this one. Yeah, it's, it's not like having a Jewish character was the most groundbreaking thing. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Um, yeah, I just think that it I I was all set up for just totally hating this movie when it started. When I oh, saw absolutely. how they were going to treat Isaiah, I'm not a big fan of Westerns to begin with. 
And just, you know, the sound quality was terrible. But I ended up disliking it less than I thought I would, which is because, I mean, it did try in its small way. I mean, it did not clearly succeed, but it I was not expecting it to be to try to be as progressive as it was. And so I wasn't left like full of loathing, like with a trader horn or an old Arizona. Um, Yeah. My reaction to the people who made trader horn is I hate you. My reaction to the people who made this as kind of, Oh, come on. You could have done better. Yeah. I guess, you know, every generation thinks it's the most progressive because technically it is. I mean, progress is the passage of time and context and being able to look back and say we're at a better place now. So, I mean, I'm sure maybe this was really effective and progressive for 1931. It did reach a lot of people and did maybe get people thinking and talking and framing uh, like Native American rights in a different way. I don't know. I mean, I don't think it did more harm than good, except in the case of Isaiah and his name. The actor's name was Eugene Jackson. I felt very bad saying, oh, it's terrible how they treated him. And then I didn't even include the name of the actor. Um, But so, yeah, I feel like there were a lot of missed opportunities. And it just even putting aside the lackluster kind of progressive ideals, it just wasn't that engaging of a movie. Yeah, the characters just. I think you've been bringing this up along this along our discussion as well, that the characters, we just didn't get our hooks into them Mm -mm. and their relationships were kind of baffling at times. It's like, why did they fall for each other? Sabra and Yancey, like they have a few very passionate moments together, but we're like, why? Like what made them think that this is the only person for me? Yeah. I mean, it just, it's, it's very strange. I, uh, yeah, I feel like the 30s, I think it was like the first sounds first attempt to do like this really epic kind of movie. And it just they just weren't quite there technically yet. And to right. pull it off. That's my big. Your big takeaway. My big takeaway. Shall we go ahead and rate this thing? Yeah, let's do it. OK, so how would you rate the acting in this movie? Um, Not super great. Honestly, yeah, I ended up liking Dix a little bit more than I thought I would at first, especially once you figure out that Yancey's character is a blowhard. It makes sense. They'd hire someone who's kind of a blowhard. And (laughs) um, I mean, nothing was like super terrible, I guess. Mm. I mean, again, poor, poor little Eugene Jackson. Just you could tell. I mean, he was directed to act the way he did. Right. It's really hard to gauge his talent as a performer when he was not allowed to be a talented performer. It just makes me so mad. If you look at the history books, the majority of cowboys were African-American. <laughs> and yet they all laugh at him when he wears like a gun and holster. It's like, no, this is what you would have probably seen all the time back then. Anyways, um, so I'll give it a, f- a five, I a guess, five? right in the right in the middle there. Like I said, Dunn was hard to take at first, but, you know, when she's older, the best performance is Georgie Stones, I'd say, as Levy, because oh, I mean, yeah. he doesn't get like a lot of like big moments, but he's believable. He's consistent. More, he's consistent. He's like one of the few characters that's consistent. I know. I secretly hope that after Yancey dies, he and Sabra finally get married. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind that either. 
I am also going to give the acting a four. That's um, probably more accurate. <laughs> just, it. Oh, gosh. I mean, it only sometimes maybe want to scream. Um, but it was. Um, let's see. What did we give Trader Horn for acting? Zero. I, I, think, I think that was one of our first negatives. Uh, no, just give it a plain old zero. OK. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like that. Um, and there were some flashes of some pretty good performances. Yeah. But I I don't know on on par. I don't think it it broke. I feel like positively a lot of the actors and by a lot of the actors, I basically mean dicks and Dunn were so conscious of the fact this was like a period piece mm-hmm. that they were acting very hard at like this is old timey and it just it came off a little artificial yeah so moving on to our next category writing how did you feel about the writing i feel like it was just like like they were doing a book report but they waited till the last minute <laughs> and so just included key points without fleshing out any of the details or characters I think I'm going to give it a four. A four? It's interesting. I'm going to give it a three. <laughs> You're always uh, just a little lower than me. I like that. Okay. Um, and and I thought that even before you said four. But uh, yeah, it really is. It is disjointed. And it's kind of like at the very end when he dies. And then the very last scene is them putting up a monument to the pioneer. Oh, I forgot about and, that. And yeah. it's him. And I was like, okay, so even at the very end where you reveal what the point of all of this was, you do it in kind of a very ham-handed way. And uh, yeah, it just, it, it wasn't inspired. It wasn't. Um, and it really wasn't. it was just disjointed in a lot of places. Ooh. Yeah. No bueno. Uh, let's see. So cinematography. Not very good. I don't, th- I mean, let me think. I mean, there were some pretty good wide shots. I like the crowd scene in the church slash gambling hall. Yeah, actually, I mean. Nothing too artsy or, or like grandiose, but I felt like it was at least serviceable. I think it did do a very good job of capturing the absolute chaos and hustle and bustle of mm-hmm. early Osage. Like you really get overwhelmed along with Sabra. Uh, so I guess I'll be a little kinder to this and give it a six. A six? Yeah. Hmm. I was debating between five and six. I think I'll match your six. I'll, I'll break the trend of just going one below here. <laughs> um, let's see. So overall, how well does the acting, writing, and cinematography work together? I'll go straight through the middle again and give it a five. Give it a five. Feel like it worked out to about average. Should we mention at this point? Because I don't think we did earlier that this is the actual best picture winner. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't think we did. Huh. Uh, so I mean, it really, which you know, again, like I would rather something like this win best picture than like Trader Horn. Oh gosh, you yeah. Know? But I mean, again, low bar. Low bar, very low bar. But you know, it was a low bar back then. I guess it's so weird. Now that I'm older, being such an old movie fan, uh, I really did when I was younger, just kind of take on, you know, the little white girl mentality of, oh, that's just how it was back then. Things were different. It's like, no, it's just people were given free reign to be as crappy as they wanted to be. Yeah, it it is how it was. 
Because people chose it. Because people chose it. And obviously it was wrong. Otherwise, it wouldn't have changed. Right, right, right. Overall, I'm going to say this thing gets a four. I'm going to say it's below average. Um, Maybe to, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. So that puts it going into the bonus rounds at a 37, which is not great, especially coming on the heels of um, our last three, which were not nominated at all and all got pretty high scores. I like Skippy a lot more than I liked this. I still think of the nominated ones we've seen so far. Skippy's my favorite. <gasps> Yeah, I, I would have to agree. Front page as well. It was, front page is, yeah. Didn't second. do too badly? No, no, yeah. Front page was fine. Um, <laughs> there was more heart in Skippy, though, I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Um, but anyway, 37, It's that's its score on the major categories. Let's see if we can pick up some bonus points here. Yeah. Uh, our first bonus point category is costumes and set. Oh, dear. Okay, well, crap, this is going to get a big one for me, probably, because once again, I am a sucker for these kind of styles, even though it was they were, you know, trying to copy the like the 1887 look. Right. They still managed to get some really cute gowns on like Dixie Lee and the sets were good. So I'll give it a four. I mean, they do, you know, they they did their homework on that aspect, at least. Yeah, I'm going to match your four. Although, oh, God, the the. Actually, give me a, give him a three. I gotta give take away a point for whatever the heck was going on with Richard Dix's hair as Yancey. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if like maybe was Dix older than Yancey supposed to be in the younger scenes because it just it looked like such a terrible like toupee. Oh no! So he was born in eighteen ninety three. So in nineteen thirty one, he would have been in his forties, like about forty. That sounds about right. I guess so. I guess they might have tried to try to younger him up. But yeah, it just uh, it looked very much like a silent film wig. Yeah, there was something very kind of about him in particular and his makeup and everything looked very silent film. And it just was a little jarring, especially because he's supposed to be this really rustic guy. Okay, okay. I'm going to stick by my four. Okay. Um, But uh, yeah, that's a really good sell on the three. Uh, (laughs) So moving on to boldness, um, what risks does this movie take that pay off? I'm going to argue that it tries to take risks and that it does not really follow through. Or no, I mean, it's a lot of lip service, frankly. I mean, her son, their son marries a Native American woman, but we only really hear her at the end when she's like says this little speech and that's it. I mean, we get no time on their romance, no time on the kids at all, really. Right. And uh, that's that. So, I mean, I I do admire, you know, I'd much rather they try to sell something like that than something like Tater Horn. But yeah, at the same time, I'll give them a one for effort. Okay. I'll give them a two for trying. Okay. So, again... I totally understand giving them a one. Yeah. I mean, um, it's really just kind of. It's just lip service. The lip it's service. Not, it's not great. I, I mean, mean, I do really like Sabra's speech at the banquet. I think that I, the movie could have done more of that, of just making them real people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't have to wait till 1929 to do that. People were people in the 1880s. Like, show that a little more instead of making them kind of these just archetypes. Right, right. 
So, legacy. What what legacy the Cimarron leave for movies to come? I mean, it, it was apparently a very popular movie, um, and it was remade, I think, in 1960. But, you know, I don't think it's as remembered as other Westerns that came no. not even much longer after this. So I'll give it another one, I guess. Another one. I mean, I think it was the very first Western nominated, and I think it was the very... It was like the only Western to have won Best Picture until, gosh, what else was? Well, in old Arizona. Oh, right. Oh, right. Well, that was dominated. So, yeah. Okay. I guess it was the first winner. Yeah. I mean, maybe it helped kick off the whole like Western genre, but I feel like that would have happened either way. I mean, Westerns were huge, like right from the beginning of film, basically. Right. I mean, I don't think they really... They didn't hurt, but they didn't particularly help. I mean, okay, yeah, it would be 59 years before a Western would win again in 1990 with Dances with Wolves. I didn't know that. I figured there were several Western winners, but I guess not. Yeah, I guess I'm sure we'll encounter some nominees. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately for me, it's just not my genre. (laughs) I say so, so superiorly. I have to admit that I have not seen all that many and... The <laughs> the spaghetti westerns that I've seen that like are the basis of Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like I like those because I like Star Wars. And yeah, those are actually acknowledged as as pretty good movies. But this one uh, and, and in old Arizona, not so much. No. It's it's a genre that's easily done poorly, I think. I think so. Especially when it's always through this white lens, like Oh yeah. And male lens as well. Male lens, yeah. Okay, so longevity. How well does this movie stand up? I'm not going to give it any bonus points. I just don't think any modern audience would be too into it. It just doesn't really do... It doesn't do shamefully bad in any category, but it just doesn't do particularly well. Not enough to hold anyone's attention that that much. Yeah, just the racist stuff alone makes it a zero for me. Yeah. Um, it It's r- really wince-inducing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, sorry, no bonus points for longevity. <laughs> Cimarron. Um, last we have technical and boy, did it have some technical issues with the sound outside. I'm going to have to give it another zero. I think they just, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't give points on effort for this when it's just, they just failed so spectacularly to like, get it to sound good. Like, yeah, I'm going to give them one point because I feel like the shots that they had um, while they were like riding around outside and like the like moving backwards to to take that shot on the cart and everything like that. I thought, oh, that's that's probably not something that they commonly did. And that yeah. probably took some some technical expertise. Actually, um, you know what? I'll give it a one. You, you you've talked me around. All righty. Um, but yeah, the sound. Oof. Yeah. It was uh, it was not easy to follow, you know, and maybe that's why I feel like I just missed a lot of details because I just couldn't understand them a lot of the time. So it was yeah, it was it was it was a bit of a chore, a bit of a chore to watch this one. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, I was all ready to really hate it and I was happy when I didn't hate it. I just was like, huh, that was kind of unpleasant. But all right. Yeah. So it has a total score of 51, which makes it the i believe the lowest 
um, aside from Trader Horn. This Whoa, year. really? So the winner, the winner is the lowest scoring aside from Trader Horn, which oh, is the worst movie of all time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, so I guess you said you didn't, you, you didn't hate it that much. <laughs> no, but I did. Did it redeem it. itself enough for you to nominate mm. it for a Notsker award? I a fit, movie award podcast movie award. I'm going to have to say no. I just, I guess part of it's because I've said yes to like so many others because Trader Horn was so terrible, but this reminds me just enough of Trader Horn for me to go, you know what? Yes. Your politics were a lot more progressive, but you still really didn't try that hard at it. No, I just feel like it was just a hit and a miss. What do you yeah. say? I mean, I feel like the offensiveness definitely speaks against it but also it's it, it, what its purpose was was never clear mm-hmm. and it it just kind of fails um just fails failure failure yeah unfortunately um so that concludes our 1931 gosh i always get confused with these it definitely involves the year 1931. It's like 3031, I guess. Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, which means that our next episode will be a roundup. We haven't had one of those in a while. No, no. We uh, we sidetracked. We broke our rules. Like many a, many a Western renegade, we broke our rules and watched movies that weren't nominated, but absolutely should have. So strange to me, the ones that were nominated versus the ones we've seen that weren't. They seemed to all be... A lot of them were period pieces, I feel mm-hmm. like. So Eastland, Cimarron. Um, it was like that versus really exciting contemporary stuff like Public Enemy and Little Caesar and Blue Angel. Like, well, Blue Angel was it's like over a period of like five years, but right, right. still pretty recent to when it was made. Yeah. Um, so we were discussing this and I think we're going to decide who's going to win out of the official Mm-hmm. nominees and winner and then also have our own of the ones we've watched which, outside the nominees right including those yeah who knows maybe they'll be the same <laughs> no um <laughs> probably not no so any thoughts as we ruminate over the next week on who should win the overall Notsker and who should win the Notsker out of the nominees <laughs> i definitely do have thoughts i don't want to share too much of them because that would kind of ruin the point of the next one. But, you know, I mean, I think this was an exciting year. It was a diverse year as it when it comes to genres or the type mm-hmm. of movies we saw. Not diverse in casts, absolutely not. But uh, you could. But on that note, it's very distressing, but I think important to see just how Hollywood was trying to integrate social and racial issues and how badly they did at it right like it's a bit alarming like even i mean i i was being the age i am now i I like to think i don't look at old films with quite the same rose tinted glasses i used to but oh i still wasn't expecting it to be quite so like on the nose terrible all the time always yeah of the official nominees i'm looking at it now um we discussed race in Cimarron. Um, let's see. I don't think it really came up in East Lynn. Well, no, I mean, 
it was all white all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It came up in the front page. It did. Yes. And it came up in Trader Horn and it came up. It came up in the Patriot, which is another unofficial. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so we've had a lot of discussion around race in, in the past few weeks. I yeah. Um it's it's going to continue, everyone. I mean, it's it's impossible to avoid, you know, especially in this time period where we do see more people of color in movies, but mm-hmm. again, directed and written by white people who really wanted them to be caricatures instead of actual right, people right. and actors. Uh, I think it's worth probably. I remember watching a long time ago a, a Hattie McDaniel documentary. She was, of course, one first African-American person to win an Oscar for Gone with the Wind. Uh, it would be, I think it, it, it would take, it behoove us to do some like real research about what their thoughts were mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. they probably felt backed into a corner. I mean, I know Hattie McDaniel was told, was like, you know, the NAACP was on her. Like, why do you keep accepting these roles as maids? And she's like, cause I'd rather earn the money I'm making playing maids than to earn the wage I'd be getting actually being a maid. So it's a thorny, thorny, thorny issue. And it's terrible, but, but, you know, that's history for you. Yeah. I mean. (laughs) Certainly isn't happening right now. Not at all. No. I mean. Hollywood, you have much to answer for. You have so much to answer for, Hollywood. You beacon of progressiveness that you think you are. But, yeah, that's that's my thought. Cool. Yeah. And I definitely have some thoughts as to who should win out of out of our smorgasbord. Of uh, choices here. I think we're going to disagree for the first time on like the actual nominees who should win. I think so. I have a feeling, Hmm. but I have a feeling we're going to agree on who should win of the not actually nominated ones. Yeah, I think I think that's true. All right. Well, on that tantalizing note, audience. Yeah, you can uh, find us at uh, on email at a comeback, a star podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at comeback, a star is our handle. You can find us on the Facebook in a group called Come Back a Star. It has members, and I have made a couple of posts just announcing. The, I've shared uh, them. Uh, announcing the, <laughs> the, the new episodes. Um, yeah, we're, we haven't been too focused on Facebook. But if you have enjoyed this podcast, please, please, please share it with your friends and family, maybe over the holidays. Although by the time this gets released, the holidays are probably long gone. Um, You'll be hungover still from New Year's. So then you can just turn it on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good idea. Just mm-hmm. um, as you emerge from your haze from the new year, just look around you and say, like, you know what? I should share this podcast with other people. Yeah. All right, everyone, we're going to turn off the projector and draw the curtains. Sweep off the popcorn from the floor. And have a great day. Happy holidays.